hey, chapter 11. Let me set the stage. That being, of course, when we start, we're studying through the book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse as we roll along. Um, but today, we're actually starting in chapter 11. So we kind of got to get a reset a little bit for where we're at. Um, so give a flyover if you want to think of it that way. The person that God chose to bring his word through was the Apostle John. The Apostle John, in this context where we're at, is receiving from Jesus a glimpse of the last days of this world. John, uh, the apostle we know, a leader in the early church, had received instruction, we've read previously, concerning the church. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we know there in chapters 2 and 3, there was this instruction to the church of that day and the church from every generation to this day till the departure when the church leaves this planet. So we've been seeing that. We see it in chapter 4 that John, was, who was on the island of Patmos, was then taken up into a heaven for a, a preview of what will take place. When in chapters 1 through 3, he's given discussion or given uh, Jesus' exhortation and instruction in regards to the church, but then he's moved up into heaven, forward in time, actually, to where he has now experienced something that even for us is yet to take place. And so that's where we see from chapter 4 on. Now, as he's up in heaven, at the end of chapter 3, there, right around the start of chapter 4, maybe partway into chapter 4, the church is taken up into heaven. The church is, is you know, so the church, you understand, is, maybe I clarify, it's comprised of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. From those who have received the forgiveness of sins, they, because they've received the gift he offers of forgiveness, they're born again, born of the Spirit, and they've been snatched away, if you would, rapidly removed, brought up into heaven by way of an event we call the rapture of the church. So if that makes sense, the church is here, we receive instruction. John there in chapter 4, verse 1 is taken up, and, and right around that same time, now John, remember, is going to go up ahead of time, come back to the island of Patmos. We will be, not yet, we will be raptured, caught up to be, in, to be with God in heaven. And God, having removed his church, which is his bride, he tells us, we're his bride. In chapter 6, he begins to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, as we've looked at that. And even as his wrath is poured out, I think this is fascinating, in that we see his amazing grace, his mercy extended, because he continues to invite people to receive his forgiveness during the tribulation period, during this, this time spoken of through many of the prophets where his wrath is poured out. I, I know sometimes we get caught up in the, the complexity, or so to speak, the the, the harshness and the, I mean, this is a terrible time on earth if you're, if you're here, this, this time of his wrath. But do you realize it probably is one of the greatest evangelical harvests in all of human history? 144,000 of his specific evangelical servants, plus we're going to look at two witnesses, and people are going to see this wrath poured out. And I, many scholars believe this will be one of the greatest harvests, if you will. People will respond to the gospel during the tribulation period. I mention it because, you know, God 
He continues to extend his love and his mercy and his grace for those who formerly re rejected him. That's why they're still here and weren't raptured up. And he continues to invite them to come to know him. Well, chapters 6 through 9 detail some of the shocking things that will happen as people continue to defy God and reject him. Chapters 6 through 9 were given a uh, kind of a chronology, uh, an incremental revelation of what's going to take place, meaning you know, the seal judgments were opened incrementally. And when we got to the seventh seal, that opened up the trumpet judgments, which is where we're at in the chronology here in chapter 11. When we got to chapter 10 last week, we, we were at um, kind of a sidebar, uh, a parenthetical portion of Scripture. Um, think parentheses. You're writing a sentence. In parentheses, you give a little more information, and then you go back to the flow of the sentence. Well, chapter 10 is parenthetical. It's telling about something else that's happened, and at the time, this is going on. Well, chapter 11 is a continuation of chapter 10. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, continue telling about something else that's taken place. So it's not moving in the, to, the, to the next trumpet and the next trumpet. That makes sense? And the reason I say these things is, you notice this could be a difficult book to for, sort out. Until you see some of these, the flow and the chronology, and we understand, okay, there's a, there's a pause that the wrath is still taking place, but there's something else happening that we need to know of, we need to be aware of. So chapter 11 begins to show us, or reveals a few other things. The sixth trumpet has been poured out. Uh, we're told that this also has taken place. So today what I'd like to do, a slight variation to what we usually do, I'm going to read through it, but not all at once. I usually read through the whole text, come back and go you know, kind of piece by piece as we work through. Let's just go through this, beginning in verse 1. I'd like to read verses 1 and 2, talk about those a little bit, and then we'll work through as the content reveals kind of the, the happening. It says in verse 1, the, John telling us as he's in heaven in the forward sense, future sense, Another thing that took place as the wrath of God was being poured out, this thing over here is happening. I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So, this temple in Jerusalem is to be measured. Why don't they just go measure it now and forward the information to, to God as it is? It's kind of hard to measure the temple right now, correct? There is no temple. It's been destroyed in 70 AD. So, there's this prophecy that speaks of these end-time events and things that kind of orient around the, the is, Israel as a nation, the people going back to making these offerings and having this temple and everything in place like it was in the, in the time you know, of, of Solomon and the Old Testament and these things that are referred to. Some things have to take place. These, these prophecies need to take place before the temple can be rebuilt. The first one that needs to happen, historically, Israel needs to be back on the right spot of dirt. They got to be in the right place, the right part of the planet for this, for this temple to be restored, rebuilt. Well, guess what? That happened in 1948. Unexplainably, this group of people, without the benefit of the internet to tell everybody what to do, they just started, their hearts were stirred. They just started going to Israel. 
one after another after another after another. And in 1948, they were recognized as a nation. But there's still a problem. It wasn't until 1967 that they acquired the dirt they need, called the temple area. And in 1967, they functionally took ownership of that area. So now we know the first thing you can check off on your calendar, Israel is regathered, according to prophecy. They are now in a place and in a position that they can build their temple. There's a bit of a problem, though, don't you know, right? There's a bit of a conflict if they start construction. Because many believe, and have believed for many years, that a particular Dome of the Rock mosque needs to be removed. And we're all pretty sure a few people are going to be upset about that. So there's going to start a religious war if that was even an attempt to be taken place. But as they continue to study and look and see where is this specific holy place to be, many scholars are now saying, no, not where that Dome of the Rock Mosque is, but just off, just behind that. That's where the true temple was built. And so now there's a lot of study. It's not definitive, but I believe God's going to show this can be built back here or right here. And with that, you can have these two religious uh, buildings exist again, you know, near one another and not have quite the turmoil. Anyway, a lot of things to, to consider. Well, why does that have to happen? Well, because Israel makes a covenant with the coming world leader, the Antichrist, the great deceiver. And for the first half of this tribulation period, Israel will be in pretty good standing, so to speak, globally. Their alignment, this agreement with the functionally new world order or the great reset or whatever term you want to use that's popular today, their agreement has been in somewhat of a peaceful place, even though the world's tumultuous. The, the wrath of the Lamb has been taking place, it's being poured out. So you always want to watch Israel to understand the heartbeat of the planet, to know what's really going on. The Bible tells us that, basically, in different words. We're also told in the Bible, in, in um, Daniel 9, I think it's verse 27, Daniel 11, Daniel 12, Matthew 24, that the Antichrist, he will come into this new temple, this temple that will be built. He'll go into the Holy of Holies. So remember, Israel made an agreement with him. And everything seemed to be good. It's all going well. But then this deceiver, this powerful world leader, and I will interject this, who solved a world problem and brought calm. See, there was a problem created because millions upon millions of people left at the same time without any advance notice. Well, actually with advance notice. The rapture of the church left a great void in all nations. It created a great dilemma, a lot of confusion. But this world leader with his charisma and his influence and his power, he calms it and solves the problem and kind of puts everybody in a good place. Now, you and I could say, well, the odds of everybody getting along are slim to none. The odds of being able to establish a one-world currency, a one-world government, a one-world leader, not really good statistically. No, no, you got, you're thinking pre-COVID. Post-COVID is a whole new way of thinking. And I'm not talking about just the illness. I'm talking about what happened in the mindset of so many people and the willingness to just follow along anything that's propagated or promoted without the exercise of reasonable logic. And we have whole nations. And they're, they're, it's just, 
I think it's probably true for all of us if we thought about it. It changed the way we look at things. That's why I call this year 2020.2. Because function is what it is. We're thinking different. And we have to ask, okay, it could happen. It could take place. We have in, 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 uh, in motion systems and now experience of how to get everybody kind of on the same page, if you would. Well, it's, they're on the same page when this Antichrist creates this deal, works out an issue with Israel, signs a, at least a seven-year agreement, and everything's going good. Until this leader goes into the Holy of Holies, the, the holiest place physically the, in, the, in the temple, and he goes in and he desecrates the temple by doing this. He, he does what's called, he performs, if you would, the abomination that brings desolation. He does something that actually desecrates. It's, it's so abominable that it causes people to leave, to flee. And, and many believe he'll declare himself to be God and that all must worship him. There's other texts that show us that you would have to have the mark of the beast to receive, to participate in the monetary system. You would have to have, not just get the mark to survive with food, but to actually, you would worship him. Well, when he goes into that temple and declares himself to be God, the, the Jews, the Israelites go, Oops, in a big way. And they realize, and things shift from that point. And so what we have here, this temple that John is told to measure, hasn't been built yet, but it will be built. The implements and the furnishings and even the, the focus with some Orthodox Jews right now is all in place. They, they just need to get the construction going and basically the approval, if you would. Well, measuring the temple, we'll see here, you know, John's told to measure this temple. It's, it's not a, a, an issue of, uh, footage, square footage, and it, it, when, the, when we're told, when he's told to measure the temple, it, it communicates ownership, knowledge, control over the temple. That God is in control, and so I, I kind of I look at this and go, I wonder that as he does this, as he's instructed, if this is really close to that abomination that brings desolation historically, chronologically. Because see, it's going to seem that everything come apart, like it's all a mess, but God's still in control, even in the messiest of times. Habakkuk 3.6 is what conveys and reminds us that uh, th these measurements are in regards to ownership. Now let's move on in our study. We've got a lot to cover, and you guys are listening well, but I've I got to move along. Verse 3. Now, this angel says to John, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So this part we're reading about now, I believe, is actually in that last half. These two people, these two powerful witnesses will be on earth, will be making declaration, empowered by God. Who are they? Well, let me tell you definitively who they are because that'll help a lot of you. They are the two witnesses. That's who they are. There's been a lot of discussion and you know, wrangling and reasoning and all this. Is it the church and Israel? Uh, okay. Is it Elijah and Enoch? You remember Enoch is one not a lot of heard of, but Enoch was and then he wasn't, right? He was here and then there was, he was translated. A translation took place. I call it an inoculation. He was here and then he wasn't. It's the one inoculation I would embrace. The only one, probably. That's my messed up head. Is it Moses and Elijah? Possibly. 
possibly, possibly, we know who it is. Two powerful witnesses. And if we can reason together and consider and contemplate and think and discuss, that's great. But let's make sure we don't try to say this is who it is, because guess you know what? You know where that goes, right? It becomes differences, become divisions, become a, par- a terrible problem when we can't engage respectfully. Respectfully, We know that these two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is a representation of repentance. It's not something you'd want to wear from a comfort perspective. It's reminding the world to repent. We see there that we're also told in verse 4 that there are two olive, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. I believe according to Zechariah 4, this is a great reference to Zechariah 4. Zechariah 4 helps us to understand that it's in reference to the continual power of the Holy Spirit. Oil, olive oil is representative in Scripture many times of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So you have these olive trees that are continually feeding. It's like a perpetual full lampstand. And we know from the earlier in the book of Revelation that these lampstands are the church, meaning the church as God's representatives, meaning these two guys are God's representatives to the world that are constantly empowered, continually fueled by the Holy Spirit to go about and do what God has called them to do. They have this message. Now notice in the time that they're in, towards the, in the, I believe, I'm totally flexible on this, the latter half, at least at the three and a half year mark of the tribulation, they're going to go forth with a, another form of um, call to repentance. But, but they're going forth with also a show of power that hasn't been seen before in this regard, in a personal sense, in a, in a conversational sense. Think about this. These two lamps, these two witnesses, if, in verse 5, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. They got some power. Anointed by God, sent by God, placed by God. They have an amazing power. See, people right now can be defiant towards God, indignant towards God, blasphemous in their conversation, really arrogant, and you don't burn them with fire, correct? I mean, we know the apostles, two of them, I think it was James and John, Thunderboys, you know, they wanted to call down fire in reference to like even Elijah because these people were mistreating the... It's like, whoa, whoa, Jesus said, you don't even know what manner of people you are. So there has been the patience of God because he will pour out his wrath. He will deal with those who get in his face and defy him. And there will come a point where they will not do that. They will, they will experience what's described here. And that's how the, that many will die because they're indignant and defiant towards God. Let's see what happens as this continues. Now, imagine someone's here, you're not, but someone else will be who's not yet a Christian. They're observing this, and these two witnesses have the ability to affect the climate. They have the ability to affect every form of life. And if you're not yet a Christian, you don't like them. You don't like them causing such discomfort, such displeasure, all these things. So you're opposed to them. But they're effective, and they're winning. And in verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. We, we were introduced to that Satan, that person, I believe, uh, back in chapter 9. 
He will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, which also our Lord was crucified, or where also our Lord was crucified. We know that's Jerusalem. Verse 9, then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days, I believe that's literal, and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because those, these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So it seems like they have the upper hand and they're winning and out of nowhere... They, they're, they're killed. They're taken down by Satan. You know, there's, it's much like what happened at the crucifixion, agreed? See, there was this declaration, and there's this great work, and Jesus is going about, but then he got himself killed. And the Romans won, and the Pharisees won, and the Jews won, and the ungodly won. And he was placed in a tomb and left there. And what's sad about, it's sick about this part, people have went so far and defied God so much, and denied his grace so much, that when these two people are killed, they celebrate in the streets. They make merry and exchange gifts. It's a demented, demonic type of Christmas engagement. It's really weird that people would be so cold-hearted and so callous that they would not want them to be buried. They'd want to be able to observe them laying dead in the street. You know, it's just recently, in a, from a technological sense, that this has been completely possible, this observation of these two witnesses. Because, you know, we used to read about war, hear about war, but even in the Iraq war, CNN gave us real-time views, and mass media and technology allowed us to see things in real time. And so we have, it's pretty obvious, this could, we could, this could be observed by those who are on the planet as the church is up in heaven, and they could be rejoicing and celebrating and saying, man, like, I'm so glad that happened to them, and now let's continue the story in verse 11. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of, law, of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them, I'll bet, especially those in close proximity. They were throwing things on them and mocking and carrying on in some form of a drunken, inebriated stupor. And then all of a sudden they stand up and life is breathed into them. And terror is upon those who denied and just ridiculed God. And they realized, oh no, now what's going to happen? It says, we continue on in verse 13, in that same Oh, I'm sorry, verse 12. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Much, again, we see this picture, if you would, and I'm not sure how to paint it perfectly, but you know, Jesus ascended into the clouds, a confirmation of divine uh, involvement, divine presence. And here, likewise, these two guys go up. And the whole world sees them ascend into the clouds. And notice what it says. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. That's not the glory of repentance. It's the glory of recognition. Recognizing, oh, man. You don't don't understand the difference, right? That's a different thing to repent in the realization of such divine power and presence. They didn't repent. There's no indication of repentance. 
Some may have, I think some probably did. Some still had a little brain matter working. But the reality is, you, this is they're just like, man. Verse 14, the second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So you see, as we've been reading and seeing from the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, and within the trumpet judgments at the sixth one, it was made known that there would be three woes. Like, whoa. So the second one is past, third one is to come, and now we, we're, we catch this seventh trumpet in verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and those, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God. I would summarize verse 15 with this thought. Those in heaven at that future moment, at that time, they see that this is wrapping up. And the new heaven and the new earth are just around the corner. This is all taking place. It will not be preempted. It will not be prevented. It's just going to go in this moment. That's what they're seeing. They're literally seeing ahead. Even though the tribulation is not done, they're seeing God's kingdom. They're aware of his reign. They're aware of his lordship. The kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Notice in verse 16, the activity of heaven is praise, worship, adoration, and declaration. That, that's what happens when you're so enamored with the majesty and the beauty and the love and the realization and the removal of sin. And all these things, you just praise God. That's the activity of heaven. And it's, something, it's not something that we have to do. It's something that it naturally, from the experiential sense in his presence, will be emanating from us. You'll just do it. When you see something that's just like phenomenal and like, wow, that's awesome, you know, in your life and you see an event, you're like, whoa! Well, no one told you at 3.5 minutes into the such and such a time, y'all yell, whoa! You know what I'm saying? Some people perceive like, man, we're going to have to sit around and worship in heaven? Oh, come on, wake up. It will be an expression of a realization of the majesty and, and the beauty of the living God. And you'll be right there with him without distraction. Check out verse 17. We give you thanks. This is what the 24 elders and those around the throne are saying. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Interesting, they destroy those who destroy the earth, because science is proving, history is showing, that this green mentality is actually more of a burnt earth mentality. Seriously. Oh, we need wind power so we can pull off these massive windmills, pull them apart, and bury them in the earth where they're not biodegradable, where they're going to be a problem for time and time again. Well, no, we need electric cars. I know I'm going to bug some people, but forget about your Prius and listen for a minute. <laughs> lithium is mined. Go look up what a lithium mine looks like. Think about where some of this stuff is. You know, I, I got no issues with those things because it's all going to burn anyway. Seriously. 
But it's interesting that those who are, quote, preserving the earth are actually the ones destroying it. And those who reject God and say there is no God and somehow think that they can keep the universe in motion and protect the, the planet from a temperature variation are the very ones that are going to be here in this moment. And they'll be the ones, and I'm not saying if you are that way, you're not born again. Don't, don't email me, okay? <laughs> but the point, you see what I'm saying? If we, put our, if we worship what we walk on, we are not worshiping the creator. And the reality of it is we got to say, man, I, you know, God will hold us all accountable. It says here, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. They shook their fist, specifically probably only one finger, into the face of God. And they carried on like there is no God. And he will, they were angry and he'll hold them accountable. But the text also gives us an insight to something we already know from the letter to the Corinthians. Every Christian also will give an account for what he's done with what God has given them. And so we too will give an account. It won't be the great white throne judgment in regards to what we've done with the, the person Jesus Christ. It will be because we're born again and we've been entrusted with opportunities, abilities, and resources to bring glory to his name. And we give an account for that. And, and it's something that he teaches us how to manage what he has given to us. And we express that uh, worship, that adoration with the things he's given us. So there's accountability. And then look in verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. So this temple is the temple of God opened in heaven. The, chapter, the first verse spoke of a temple that's here. And so you, you, there's this new temple. And it's going to be different because it won't be set up for the same purposes. It's signifying God's presence. We'll be present with him. I want to give you um, four things from this chapter that I believe are, are, can be daily application. You know, as we read through this book that's future and present and previous and all these things, what's it got to do with me? What's it got to do with you and how you live? Isn't it important to respectfully ask God with reverence to think, okay, how's this going to affect my life? We'll consider these four things. God is in control even when the world seems out of control. For reference, let's read the chapter again. God is in control, even when the world seems out of control, even now. When we see things coming apart in a sense of order and, and history and continuity, we're seeing some ra radical changes. God is still on the throne. The second point to consider, he gives power to his witnesses. We see there in verse 3, and I will give power to my two witnesses. They didn't determine just to go do something for the Lord from the heavenly realm. He placed them for a purpose and empowered them to accomplish that purpose. And it's the same for you and me today. He will give us power to be his witnesses. If you think about Acts um, 2, so in John 20, 22, I believe, Jesus said, receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So his followers, after the resurrection were born again, those who received the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 1, they're told to wait until they're endued from the Father. They receive power from the Father. And so they're born again. They're now to wait, and we know they're waiting. They're in, in Jerusalem, and there's like 120 of them at least that are gathered together, and they're waiting for this thing. They don't know what it really is. But in Acts chapter 2, they receive the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So there's the, the born again, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in John 20, 22. And then there's the baptism or the enabling of the Spirit to go out and be his witnesses. They weren't even supposed to go out and be witnesses yet. But we know that God spoke to them. And, in, and literally we're told that in that situation, they exercised and experienced the gift, which is for today as well, the gift of tongues. They experienced this where God gave them the language of the people of that day. That he enabled them to speak to those who had gathered in Jerusalem. They'd received the power to be his witnesses. And they said this to the people in Jerusalem that spoke different dialects. They said it in the apostles, the, the, the disciples, I mean, said to those people in the various dialects, they told them of the wonderful works of God. They didn't draw attention to themselves because they knew a language. They didn't use it as a, as a you know, communication with God in that sense. But why do I say that? Because sadly, some people see the gift of tongues and they, they don't want to deal with it. But understand this, out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, God distributes the gifts as he wills. So you don't earn them. They're not a verification or a validation of empowering or, or presence of the Holy Spirit. He distributes as he wills for the benefit or the edification of all. So he has different purposes than man has manipulated those to be. The point being, he gives power to his witness. He empowers you through the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses now. A witness is someone who's born again and people observe what you do. So you're either a good witness, a bad witness, somewhere in between witness, but you're a witness any way you look at it. And so it's because it's actually, it's an expression of who you are. He empowers them. Notice it's very clear. He gives them the power. That's third part, part to consider. He protects you to the finish. Verse 7. When they finish their testimony... Well, we read what happens next, right? When they finish their testimony, they're dead. Physically, bodily. That's the end of it. And we got to realize that. And we got to remember that. You know, he protects you to the finish. He protected you when he brought you the gift of salvation. He's protected you as you've grown as a Christian, as you're growing as a Christian, as you're maturing spiritually, and he'll protect you to the finish. So important. And it's also important to realize, you know, we pray for healing We've actually seen in healing recently, a couple of different things happened real recent. And we, we know that God does those things. We even pray for, in some cases, people have requested, you know, that they would have a healing that would in, result in a longevity of life, and the current infirmity or illness wouldn't take their life. But we pray under this umbrella, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Don't pray for me to live here longer. I've got a set time to depart, and you better not ever say, can Dan stay longer? <laughs> no, no. My day to go is when I'm gone. I, I, don't, I love doing what I do, but seriously? I would rather be depart at the day to depart. I, I, I'm not looking for a Hezekiah holdover. I won't stay longer. Things that happen, whatever. But I'm just like, hey, when the time comes, the time comes. And he will all, I mean, just understand that. He will empower you and he will keep you. He'll protect you. He'll protect you in your workplace. He'll protect you in your home. He'll protect you to be his witness. He will allow his light to shine through you. He's got this. It goes back to the first part. He's in control even when things don't seem like he's in control. The last thing we'll consider out of verses 17 to 19, give thanks to God. 
Give thanks to God. It's so important that we elevate that and allow that in spite of our situations, regardless of the cancer, no matter what the, the prognosis is, no matter how the relationships are, no, no matter how difficult the finances are, that we choose to do this, I will still worship God. Amen. I will thank God. I will thank Him. Because ultimately, you're leaving. You're not staying. As a Christian, a follower of Christ, you're going to depart and you're going to be with the Lord. And it's not because you've done so good and been so nice and all that other stuff. You, if you're good and you're nice and you're, you're maturing in your social engagement, it's because His presence, His Spirit is with you. And He's transformed you because you've received the gift of life. So how can you take credit for a gift that you've been given? Hey, I'm a pretty good pastor. Look at me go. Like, dude, you're nothing. Without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, you're just blah, blah, blah. You see what I'm saying? Have that in our mind. I'm thankful that God would use any one of us. And some of you know me more, so you're just amazed that God even uses me. You really are. You're like, all I can say is Acts 4. He must have been with Jesus. He's an unlearned, untrained man. Okay, you got it right. I've been with the Lord. And I want to, I want to give thanks to him. So if you would, um, the worship team's going to come up. We're going to close in a song of worship. We're going to close and we're going to pray through 1 Corinthians 15, 58. So if you'd like to turn there, um, we'll stand up and sing together. We'll also have it on projection. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And um, you also can hopefully can look at 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. And we're going to pray this through as you will easily see the correlation for our time. Will you stand with me? God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for bringing simplicity and clarity from your word. We thank you for the questions that are now ruminating in our head, and we're kind of wondering, well, how's that work, and what's this about? Thank you, God, that you've given us life to ponder and wonder and consider these beautiful truths in this wonderful time in heaven that you're calling us to. But even as we consider that, Lord, we're somewhat disturbed, a hint of distress, because we know people that don't know you, and we're concerned for them. We have compassion and interest in their lives. And so I would ask, God, that you would equip us to be your witnesses according to your word. That we would have empathy and a measure of understanding, but most of all, clarity in conversation, in conduct, in the things that we do. Oh, Lord, help us to be a reflection of your grace, to be humble, to be kind, to reflect your love in some measure. God, we thank you. Help us, God, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work, God, the work you're doing in us, the work you're doing through us for your glory, Lord. We know, God, that what we're doing now in this day and this hour has an element of urgency. We also know that the work we do, what we're offering to you, it's not in vain, Lord. It has a place and a purpose. And so, Lord, help us to be attentive, to watch, 
to be firm, sure-footed, standing fast in the faith, that we would have the courage needed to face the adversary knowing that you went before us and you guard us from behind, that you are our strength, our hope, our very present help in time of need, that we would be strong, God, strong in you and strong in grace, that all that we do, everything that we're about, would have the stamp, the expression, the revelation of love. Thank you, God, for who you are and what you've done. We put our faith in you, our trust in you. Teach us what to do today, tomorrow, until we see you face to face, not because we need to do something, but because we know someone, that someone is you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's sing. Amen.